Well, if half the congregation would make its way off the stage. <laughs> well, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 24. You know, I was, as we were singing, I was praying, you know, eight years I've been bivocational, and Lord knows how much longer that could be, one day or a few years, Lord only knows, but after a, a long day of work, a long week, you know, when things kind of get tough or things get stressful, and people ask, they say, well, you know, how do you do that? Well, for example, I was thinking today, man, at least it's church night. At least I get to come here. And so I pray it's the same for each and every one of you. If you had a, you're having a rough week or maybe a little bit of stress or maybe things are just weighing on you, at least we're gathered here together to read the word together. And so with that, <clears throat> let's open up our word to chapter 24, the book of Deuteronomy. We've got 10 chapters left the book of Deuteronomy. Let's pray, and then we're going to chat. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that you gather us together, fill us with your spirit, bless us with your word. You recharge us, and you re-equip us to go out there to represent you in all that we do. You know we fall far short, Lord, and yet you still choose to use us to carry your name. So we pray for a special blessing this evening, a special refreshing in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, where does fairness come from? You ever thought about that? The whole world is trying to say what's fair, what's not fair, who's right, who's wrong. I mean, where does that even come from, this desire to make things right? And as we go through the book of Deuteronomy, especially in these last few chapters, in chapter 24, and we see all these different laws, and we, we see these regulations made, to make things fair. And today, we're going to talk about things that seem to be opposite from each other. We're going to talk about divorce and fairness. And I praise God, I haven't been through divorce, but I hear that it's not fair. I hear that it is not fun. And I hear that it is very difficult. And well, what does the Bible say about that? And then we're going to have some random, seemingly random, but we know the Lord connects all the dots, discussions about fairness and different laws and treating people properly. But this evening, let's start off with verses 1 through 5 of chapter 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her out as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Verse 5. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home for one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. Just a, a little side joke. If that happened in our military today, we'd lose half the military because they all get married, like right away, right when they get out. But um, verses 1 through 4 when we're talking about divorce, what is going on here and how does it apply 
to the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. You know, on Sunday mornings in Corinthians, we're talking about and referencing that uh, divorce is an abomination. God hates it. And he he tells us in the Old Testament for the prophets that God hates divorce. And here it says that divorce, when it happens, there are certain rules. We're like, well, what is it? Well, the Lord deals with broken people. He does not want divorce. Now, it says here that a man can divorce his wife if he has found some uncleanness in her. Well, I thought you could only get divorced if someone commits sexual immorality or if you've been abandoned by a non-believer. And that's what Jesus clarifies in Matthew chapter 19, verse 8. He says, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it is not so. Jesus is saying that there should not be divorce. There should be no divorce at all, but because of the hardness of your heart, in the word of God, Deuteronomy chapter 24, it says that he will permit it. But then he clarifies in verse 9 of Matthew chapter 19. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So the uncleanness listed here in Deuteronomy chapter 24 is sexual immorality alone. That is what is meant here. But the way that the rabbis would interpret this depended on if they were conservative or if they were liberal because our favorite verse that we like to share is there's nothing new under the sun. That's right. I'm going to say it every single time just to make some people laugh. It's it's all the same. And so the same discussions are happening today, and they were happening in Jesus' time. And Jesus clarified, except for sexual immorality, it shouldn't be. And even if there is adultery or sexual immorality in a marriage, that doesn't mean you have to get divorced. He's permitting it. It's not a command to get divorced. He does not want divorce. Now, coming back to this context... What does it mean that he could get divorced from her, she could marry somebody else, and then it's specifically listed here in these first four verses that it's an abomination for her to go back to the original husband? Wouldn't we want that? Like, wouldn't we want reconciliation? Well, he's not talking about reconciliation. What he's talking about is passing around marriages and wives and husbands like it's just no big deal, like changing clothes. Just kind of what we're seeing in our culture today and in other cultures around the world. There are uh, some missionary discussions that we've had with some of our missionaries in South America that in certain cultures, in their governments, it is very expensive to get legally married. And, and so they, they say that they're married to someone when they're living with them, but they're really not. And maybe they're with them as a long-term boyfriend, girlfriend, and they, they call them husband and wife, but they're not legally married. Well, then they get upset, and there's an argument, and then guess what? They find another person that they say is their spouse now, and that's not actually their spouse. That is an abomination to God. Marriage, as we know, as we've been studying here in the last few weeks, is a sacred covenant before God. And so here in Deuteronomy chapter 24, it's being made very clear. We can't just be passing around people. The root word here in the Hebrew for divorce is a tearing away. It's insinuating like an amputation. It's like separating a person. It's painful. It's not supposed to be easy, even though it seems that way when he just says, give them a piece of paper and let them go. Well, that leads us to some interesting questions. And I'm just going to, I'm going to do you all a favor. I'm going to leave the questions here with no answers to really get your brains moving. 
That's not, a, that's not very nice, but that's what we're going to do. What do we do as Christians in America when the government is no longer interpreting marriage by biblical standards? What then is a marriage and where does marriage come from? The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 13 that we're to obey all authority and the government. So as of this moment, if someone were to come to me and say, well, I'm spiritually married, we didn't get married at the courthouse because it's that we don't believe what the government is doing is right, I would say that they're in error from the scriptures, that no, you need to get married legally. If you're not legally married, there is no such thing as a spiritual marriage. But the question is, where is the line? When they start, when, when, if they start mandating that no marriage is valid unless the pastor or spiritual leader that leads it affirms homosexuality, for example, how would we do that? How would, what would decisions would we make? Again, I told you, I prepped you ahead of time. I don't have an answer there. Don't have an answer. But there's some things that we need to start asking ourselves as Christians. What does the Bible say? What is God? What does he want? How are we honoring him in the scriptures? And, th- and those are some things that I think that we need to start discussing. But here's my overarching point. The nation of Israel doesn't keep this law. Ma- majority speaking, they get multiple divorces, especially in Jesus' time. Fast forward to when they reenter. At that time, there were rabbis that were known for giving certificates of divorce. Literally, if the food was kick- cooked wrong, they would say, that's an uncleanness. You've caused me to sin because I was upset because of your bad breakfast. And they were getting divorces. And we're seeing the same today. How can we as the church corporately, big C, all the overarching body of Christ, talk about the sanctity of marriage when we also defile it? When we also don't affirm it? When it becomes no longer important? Or when churches, by and large, are affirming so-called marriages that are not between one man and one woman as the Bible clearly affirms as a sacred covenant before God. So lots of food for thought, but over and above, we must realize that we want to follow Jesus Christ because he is the fulfillment of all scriptures. And he is the one that explains us in Matthew 19 when marriage is, or when divorce is permitted, but remember it is not mandatory and that it is a sacred covenant before God. Now, that's verses 1 through 4. We're just getting started here. So in verse 5, we see that marriage is so important, it's valued over military success. It doesn't say when you're at, unless you're in a real war, then this goes out the window. It is saying here that marriage is so sacred, it is more important than economics. It is more important than military success. It is more important than battle. I would stretch and say in my opinion, remember my opinion, not worth anything. Ask my wife. Just kidding. In my opinion, God is affirming that we should defend marriage more than we even defend the state, that we should defend family, God-ordained family, more than you defend the state. He's saying here, husbands, you need to bless your wives, establish your families before you risk dying in combat. There it is in verse 5. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home for one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. 
One last comment before we continue. What if we judged men, not by the medals on their chest, but by happy, how happy their family is with them as a husband? What if we were as impressed with a man who was able to have a blessed home and a happy wife and well-behaved children as we are with a medal of honor or a silver star or battle accolades? What would our country be like? Fascinating thought, just throwing it out there, a little salt for the meal here, a little, little flavor. We're going to jump now to the next few verses, verses 6 through 9, and it's going to seem like we're making a bunch of um, subject changes as we continue. No man shall take the lower or the upper millstone in pledge, for he takes, for he takes one's living in pledge. Verse 7, if a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren of the children of Israel and mistreats him or sells him, then that kidnapper shall die, and you shall put away the evil from among you. Take heed in an outbreak of leprosy that you carefully observe and do according to all the priests the Levites shall teach you, just as I commanded them. So you shall be careful to do. Verse 9, Remember that the Lord your God, what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way when you came out of Egypt. And so that for the next section of verses, it's going to seem like the book of Proverbs, where we're going to have a, a different law change, and we're going to kind of sit through them one by one, little by little, try and connect the dots. Verse 6, we see that there can be no collateral used in a loan that a person used to make the money. For example, if you were making flour and you had the upper and the lower millstone you had to ground the seeds the wheat or the barley to make the flour to sell the flour to pay back the loan but if you were to take the millstone how is he going to make any flour if he can't make any flour how is he going to pay you back and a crafty person could say well i'll loan you this amount of money with no interest because that's what the bible says remember last chapter last week the nation of Israel, you can't charge interest with other people in the nation of Israel. So maybe they would get crafty and they would say, all right, well, he owns a, a mill. I'm going to take the stone as collateral. You pay me back that $1,000, that 1,000 shekels. And if you don't, I get the whole factory. Well, maybe that person's son or daughter's in the Israeli or the nation of Israel hospital. And they'll do anything for the money. Yes, yeah, sure, I'll figure it out later. They go around begging for money. They, sh- they come up short, and that crafty person's like, well, I'm just going to take all of it now. Sorry, so sorry, so sad. I'm glad I was able to help you out. Good thing Johnny's okay, but I'm going to take your livelihood now. Not so in the nation of Israel. There needs to be fairness. People need to be treated equally. You're not to take advantage of each other. Speaking of taking advantage, in verse 7, This is specifically thinking, this is specifically speaking of taking someone and selling them into slavery. So don't think of modern day kidnapping for ransom and then we let them go. No, we take this person, we take them down to the slave traders and then we sell them off. You never see them again. If you get caught doing that, there is one punishment. They kill you. You do not do that. Well, we talk about being soft on crime in America and how somehow that's better for people because the people in the United States have begun to drift farther and farther away from the Bible. Whether or not you believed in the true and living God, 
For a long time in our culture, we believed a fundamental truth that not every person is good. As Christians, we know that every person is born as a sinner, as a fallen being. And left to themselves, they will always defer to the wrong. That's our flesh. Even those that are believers in, in Christ who are born again know that we wrestle with the flesh. We wrestle with doing wrong. Well, as people begin to drift away from the Word of God, they believe that everyone is generally good. And if we just change their environment, they will make the right decision. Therefore, if we don't have the police there and we're not arresting them for everything, they'll be successful. Well, the Bible shows us that punishment for crimes is a deterrent. And we can look around the world today. You could take a, a city-state like Singapore, where you are caned publicly for graffiti. Does Singapore have a graffiti problem? No. No. They will cane you publicly if you leave gum under the table. Now, there are sinful people there, too, just like all over the planet. It's not a perfect place. I'm not claiming it is. But it's cleaner than most of the cities you'll see in the rest of the planet. Crime and punishment has a deterrent. All we see is that even when you don't understand what's going on, always stick to biblical principles. And that's what we see in verse 8 and 9. Because there it's talking about leprosy. And what does the Bible say here? Does it explain how they're not going to find a cure for this until the 21st century? Do they talk about how it's a genetic disease and some people are susceptible and others does it explain the dna process and how bacteria works and how the fallen world and does it say any of that no it says hey you don't want to get leprosy then follow what the bible says well why why is it like a spiritual thing yes it is spiritual but it's also scientific what laws were required in the nation of israel laws of cleanliness of washing of not having cross-contamination of not having dirty clothes. Remember in the book of Leviticus, we went through whole chapters on what to do if there's mold in your, in your dwelling. And if you couldn't clean it multiple times, you remember what it said in the book of Leviticus? It said, bulldoze the house. Can't stay in it. So just follow the word of God. And then we see that science catches up to the Bible. But we've been kind of, maybe not you guys. You guys are smarter than me, but I had public Western, West Coast indoctrination, public school. You know, I had to unlearn all these things that I was taught, that the Bible is backwards and that science has disproven everything about the Bible. And then I started actually learning the Bible and see that science is catching up to it, and it's actually the opposite. Well, that's what we see here too. But speaking about rebellion, that's what it's speaking of in verse 9. If you remember Miriam, the sister of Moses, she was in rebellion and tried to come after Moses and then God withered her hand with leprosy. She got leprosy. And then Moses actually went and said, hey, could you heal my sister? And God said, okay. And then she was healed. She was cleansed. Ultimately, what does that show us? Above all things, that God is in control of all things at all times. And we may get away with rebellion in our own mind for a certain amount of time, but ultimately, that as you sow, that shall you also reap, as it says in Galatians. How can we say that? Well, for example, speaking of the nation of Israel, remember that Moses is here giving this second law, this second retelling, before he crosses into the Jordan. 
Well, he doesn't cross, I should say. He has to stay behind because of his reaping what he sows. But Joshua will take the nation of Israel over the Jordan into the promised land, and he's giving this retelling. Well, the people of Israel will not obey the law. They will not keep the Sabbath year. They will not keep the year of Jubilee. And what happens in their rebellion to God as they fall away from these laws? They're taken into captivity for 70 years. Again, showing that as you sow, that shall you also reap. If, if we die in our sins and trespasses and do not accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, what is the penalty? Eternity in hell. As the Bible tells in the book of Revelation, from everlasting to everlasting for eternity. We have to accept Jesus Christ, our personal Lord and Savior, receive him by faith, and he makes us a new creation, making a way for salvation for eternity. And so we may think to ourselves, why are these people getting away with this so long? Why is God allowing these people to blaspheme his name? He won't forever. And we, we need to remember Miriam in that leprosy. Obey the word of God. There are consequences if you do not. Remember that as you sow, that shall you also reap. Well, let's continue now in verses 10 through 15. When you lend your brother anything, you shall not go into his house to get his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you lend shall bring the pledge out to you. And if the man is poor, you shall not keep his pledge overnight. You shall in any case return the pledge to him again when the sun goes down, that he may sleep in his own garment and bless you, and it shall be a righteousness to you before the Lord your God. Verse 14. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be a sin to you. Don't take a garment in a pledge. We don't really get it, but just to build the context, the clothing that a person wore at that time, it's all handmade and handwoven. There's no sweatshops in Malaysia making cheap stuff that comes over and we buy it at the, the, the swap meet or over at the Goodwill, $5 on the rack. These are your living wages. And most people had one, maybe two articles of clothing that would cover them and they would wear it every day. So when you have something that valuable, it would be used as collateral on these loans. If you don't pay this back, we're going to take your tunic. And that's what Jesus would say later on. If someone asks for your tunic, give them your cloak also. If, they give, if you give them the overcoat, give them your shirt. Give them the shirt off your back. That's where that comes from. Go the extra mile. Well, here he's saying don't collect it. Don't take it. If that's all they have, they don't have a bed. They don't have any clothing. That's what they wrap themselves in at night. Let them keep it at night. Hey, then take it back in the morning and then give it back to them at night. We need to treat people fairly. And then in those same line of thinking, it says here in verses 14 through 15, a laborer is worthy of their wages. Pay them. Pay them what they're due. You need to pay them. Don't, don't rip them off. Again, I said earlier that the nation of Israel would break these laws. And when I say they break these laws, I mean they break like every single law they have here. Every single one. Give me a reference, Mike. What about this cloak thing? What about that? I, you guys are so smart. You guys ask these things. Amos chapter 2 
the prophet speaks out against this very thing amongst other for why Israel is being judged by God. In Amos 2.8, it says, They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in a pledge and drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. And so if you read Amos chapter 2, it, it just speaks of accusation from God after accusation as to why Israel is being judged at that time. They were taking the clothes of the poor as collateral, knowing they couldn't pay it back, and then just saying, I hope it's good weather for you. And God is not happy. And we talk about being fair. And I, and I asked that question earlier, where does fairness come from? We are, as Christians, constantly attacked about being unfair. But then the question is, where does fairness come from? Who dictates what is fair and what is not fair? When we talk about democracy and we talk about the United States and where did it come from, our revolution was fought to have a fair government. Other governments have come along and said that they are more fair. Communist revolutionaries look at us and say we are unfair. We are oppressing the poor. So they want to oppress them to unrepress them. And, and so when we're talking about them, whoever they are, we see that when they get the power, what do we see? They're not fair. And we'll say things, at least, and I'm going to put myself here in a camp, us older people, don't laugh too hard, some of you. We'll say things like, life is not fair. But then the Bible tells us we need to treat people fairly. What is fair? For example, it says to pay a laborer their wages. What, what is a fair wage? Does everyone need to be paid the same? Are some people worth more than other people? Is it wrong for me to pay someone that's more experienced and does a job better that's been doing it for 20 years more than someone that's brand new on their first week? Is it wrong for me to pay somebody in their first week more than the person that's been there for 20 years because they're faster, more efficient, and more intelligent with that situation? Is that fair? Is it fair that a person would work hard their whole life to save up enough money to give all of it to their kids that earn nothing and somebody else will work their whole life and then lose it all, and their kids start with nothing and have to earn it all themselves. What is fair? And we see that without God, there is no such thing as fairness. Without the true giver, the life maker, there is no such thing as fairness. Without God, if the atheist is right, then might makes right. Then whoever's in charge can dictate, whoever has the power can dictate what fairness is. And you'll see in history, before Christ, in the general Western world outside of the nation of Israel, that's exactly how governments were ruled. Might makes right. Roman peace. We tell you, therefore it is true. And they would come in and they would enslave people and women had no rights. And if they wanted to for their entertainment, they'd make you fight to the death for their entertainment in front of their people that are so-called citizens. But then Christ comes into the world and shares the Bible with the whole world. The gospel goes out and says that there's no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, but that all are equal in the eyes of Christ. And that we need to treat each other with fairness, that we need to go the extra mile, that we need to turn the cheek, that we need to love our enemies. And it radically changes the world. 
And then Satan comes in and says that we are the ones that are unfair, that we are the oppressors, that we are the wicked ones. You see, it doesn't matter what government type we have. I know I wince as I say it, red-blooded American that I am. It doesn't matter what system of government, it doesn't matter what economy, if man doesn't actually care for his fellow man, it doesn't matter. And if we aren't born-again believers, we are all fallen people who will simply follow our, insul- and our, our fleshly influences, a slave to Satan, like the Bible tells us in Romans 1, 2, 3. And I praise God that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Not just have everlasting life, but be a new creation in him, born again, completely changed. And so I tell you, as Christians, we are not called to bring democracy or capitalism to the rest of the world, socialism. We're not supposed to speak English, Chinese, Spanish, doesn't matter what language. We are to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to every living soul on this planet because it is the only way that we would truly have any liberation at all. And so I can't even say to here, like, what's a fair wage and how do you pay it? It's whatever's right. It's whatever's fair. And we do that before God. We don't rob our brothers. What is a good interest rate? I got no idea. The one that's agreed upon, I guess. But if you care for your brother, if you care for your sister in Christ, you're going to want to do what's right. You're going to want to do what's right for each other. And so now in verses 16 through 18, it says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor... You hear that? These people on phones. Remember these days? This is, this is Bible pages moving. Yeah, I know. Don't get that worth a swipe. <laughs> nor children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. Verse 17. You shall not pervert justice due to the, due the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. Now, this is radical. This is written thousands of years before Christ, before the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, if your city didn't surrender, they'll kill every woman, man, child, anyone they don't enslave. They'll just kill all of you. They will salt your fields. They will destroy every living thing in there. And then they'll go to the next town and say, you don't do what we say, we're going to do that to you. Okay, well, that's just the Roman Empire. It could be anything. The Mayans would sacrifice their prisoners of war to their false god until there's rivers of blood coming down. Well, that's just one more. That's just another example. Attila the Hun coming across from Siberia would put piles of human skulls up to the sky to show their enemies, if you disobey us, this is what we will do. What does Jesus tell us? What does the word of God say? Love your enemies. Love them. When they ask you to go a mile, those that oppress you and hate you, go too. Bless those that despitefully curse you and use you. I I don't like any of those verses. I'd rather make mountains. But that being said, I love here that the Lord is fair. I'm not judged for my father's sin, but I got plenty of my own. 
And when God could smite all of us, he could destroy every single one of us. If he used the same rules that man used, he could just wipe this place clean and start all over. He says, when you were enemies with Christ, he died for you because he practices what he preaches. He showed us the way. When I cursed his name, I said he didn't exist. I blasphemed him. He gave his only begotten son. So the day that I dropped to my knees and said, Lord, forgive me, he turned the other cheek. He went the extra mile. He gave me salvation. And he said, go into the world. Go and sin no more. I make you my son. You can sit with me in the, in the table, in the presence of your enemies, by green pastures and still waters. I'll give you crowns of righteousness for my namesake. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's my king. That's my Lord. That's ours. And so I'm so grateful that he does not judge me the way that humanity wants to judge others. He says, you shall not pervert justice do the stranger or the fatherless. I remember my, my, you know, some of my earliest interactions with the Bible. I remember reading in the book of Psalms, and I remember being touched by the Holy Spirit, just that, that, just that little... I had a feeling, and it felt nice. I don't have those very often. I remember reading the words that he has a special heart for the fatherless, and I grew up in a broken home, and I had a lot of anger and animosity about that. I didn't know it. I was just an angst-filled, angry teenager and young man. And I remember thinking that God has a special heart for me in that situation, and it just reached through the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit just touched my heart. I just thought, i got to follow this guy. I have to follow this Lord. He is so fair. And he looks out for the fatherless and the widow and the broken and the lost and the least of these, and he goes out of his way to protect them. And if you're a student of history at all, you will see that humanity left to itself might makes right. But for the followers of Christ, those that are strong defend the weak. Those that have power defend those without, and it changes the whole world. But when we remove Christ, when we remove the word of God, it's all gone. We need to remember that we, like the nation of Israel that was slaves in Egypt, verses uh, 18, we need to remind ourselves that we were slaves to sin and not look at those that have opposing viewpoints from us with animosity and anger and vitriol. That's a fancy word for saying real anger, like super angry. We need to look at them with compassion and mercy, but not compromising with truth. The Lord never compromises with what truth is. And now closing out this chapter in verses 19 through 22, when you, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. The Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the bows, the bows again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. And that shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. I'm just going to tell you work for food, you people that are kind of in politics, is biblical. The Bible tells us in the New Testament, if you do not work, you should not eat. And so all of us should be doing some kind of labor. All of us should be doing something. Now, that being said, let's look at some spiritual applications here. What does the law say here? How much of your field do you need to leave? 
How much of the corners of your field do you need to leave? If you're just looking at the law and not caring about people, you could mow that thing right up to the centimeter left over at the end of your field and say, well, I'm being obedient to the scripture. You could drop like three kernels out there and you're making your guys sift through every piece of dirt to get it. And you're saying, well, I'm being obedient to the law. To the law. Or you could have another person's heart. Do you remember that book of Ruth that we read recently? That man Boaz? Remember he told his guys, leave extra, drop some more. Hey, hey, drop some more, drop some more. Why? Because he loved Ruth. A Moabitess, an enemy, someone from another nation. They weren't supposed to love them, but he had a heart for her. He wanted her in the family. And because of love, the law's fulfillment was found. And that is actually caring for the fatherless, actually caring for the widow, actually caring for the poor. Now, there are times when the church is being taken advantage of. There's people here and they want to rip off the church and they use their sob stories and they're using con games. And it's unfortunate. I don't have the wisdom of Solomon to discern who is lying and who's a, a wolf in sheep's clothing and who's a viper and who is actually hurting. I don't, I don't have that discernment and I have to be wise and I will make mistakes but I will trust God to guide and direct us but I do know that this fellowship is providing more for others in other places in other countries than many of our own size and we do it because of a heart of love not because of a law that says that we have to do it a certain way we just want to represent Christ and do the best that we can we need to not be taken advantage of, but we also need to have those hearts of compassion. But I love how the Lord has something here for us in our own walk with Him. Because this word that's in front of us, this is called the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life, and He is the word. This is the word of God. And as much as I wish that the Lord would just give me the, just to memorize the whole Bible without any effort at all, you got to go in the field and pluck it out of the ground. But when you're following Jesus, our Boaz, and you're in the Word of God, and you're rightfully dividing the Word of truth, and you're seeking after Him daily, give us daily our bread, and you're in the Word of God, He's just like Boaz. He just starts dropping nuggets for you. He just starts leaving little things for they're just for you, just for you. But some of, some of us Christians, we don't even go out to the field. We're like, well, there's nothing out there. They already harvested it all. I'm just... I'm just I'm just dumb. I'm just not smart. Listen, I cannot speak Spanish. As hard as I try, I am like a four-year-old at it. But I know if I stay in the Word of God and I continue to glean from the field and I keep following at the Lord, that He'll feed it to me. And all of a sudden, I'll be able to say a Bible verse at the right time in another country, and I'll just be like, Lord, that was all you because you know how dumb I am. And if that's true of a foreign language, that I don't understand. How true of it is a language that we do understand and the Word of God that we do have. So what are, what are you waiting for? Follow after your Boaz. Well, this evening we're going to close in prayer as we do on Wednesday nights, intercessory prayer. We want you to pray loud enough that we can all hear one at a time so that we can agree with you, praying for those in our authority, the peace of Jerusalem, interceding for each other, the operation of the Holy Spirit if the Lord so leads you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you're doing here. 
how you're guiding us and leading us. We pray that your word would just be written on the tablets of our heart, that we would grow in you and be used by you to the whole world, Lord, and that you would continue to be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.